I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. So I think most of you know that by May 26, my next book is coming out. It's called That Little Voice in Your Head. It's an analogy between computer science and neuroscience. It's, it's not as complicated as I make it sound, but what I'm attempting to do is to tell you that sadly, we humans now understand our computers better than how much we understand how our brains work. And so that little voice in your head is trying to use the analogies of how your computer does things and sometimes does mistakes uh, and bring that to understanding your brain so that you can actually operate your brain better than you operate your phone. I don't know if that's a nice thing to say, but that's the attempt. And the subtitle of the book is adjust the code that runs your brain. So it's, un, you know, different than solve for happy in terms of it has a lot of exercises, a lot of practice and awareness exercises that hopefully would get you to the point where you practice those things and actually make them work for you a lot more. Now, that doesn't mean that I will actually stop talking about artificial intelligence and my work on Scary Smart. I think this is a, a lifetime mission that is really needed in the world. I think this is, you know, artificial intelligence is definitely the biggest thing that we need to work on as humans collectively so that the collective intelligence that's produced is in favor of humans. As I always say, artificial intelligence should have our best interest in mind. And my guest today is definitely one of the best minds on the topic of artificial intelligence. 40 years of work in technology with some of the giants of technology around along those 40 years and um, a serial entrepreneur and today also the CEO of a very, very prominent artificial intelligence company. Christopher Newen, his attack scientist, a professor and a developer that's second to none. Since his family in 1978 had to run from Vietnam, he found himself in California and exposed to technology at the critical moment where technology was developing in ways where he became a multiple time tech founder, played a key role in many companies, as I said, from building the first flash memory transistors at, uh, at Intel to spearheading the development of Google's apps uh, as uh, the first engineering director. And he today is an outspoken proponent of the emerging field of AI and artificial intelligence specifically, and a thought leader in the space of ethical human-centric AI with his company, as I said, uh, Atomatic. It's written as AI-tomatic. Uh, we're going to find out how he pronounces it. He is hoping with his work to redefine how companies approach AI in the context of life-critical industrial applications. So basically how AI can help uh, preserve life if you want, but also his views on how AI is developing and how we have a role to play. I think you will find uh, in many ways match my call to action where we, every one of us have a responsibility for building our future. I think we're going to really enjoy this conversation with Christopher Newman. First of all, thank you so dearly for the time. This is a topic that is very, very dear to me. Uh, I think we have many views that are uh, agreed and in common, and maybe some views where I can learn a lot more uh, from you. Uh, I don't know if we have actually overlapped at Google. Which years were you at Google? 2006 through 2008. Okay. So no, I, so I, we definitely didn't work together. I would have remembered for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I, I actually joined end, uh, end of 2006 and I left 2018. So, uh, I had a, a longer joy and a longer suffering. Let's just uh, keep it at that. <laughs> <laughs> and wh were you in California or where? 
I'm I'm in Los Altos. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I understand you used to be with Google X, so I'm I'm just down the street from you on San Antonio. Yeah. Right. Oh yes. You, you keep going south, yeah. and that's where I am. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I'm, again, as I said, I'm very, very grateful that you give me the time. I think um, we're in for a very interesting conversation. My audience in general are not technical. Uh, you know, this is not about technology and, and IT and so on, or even artificial intelligence, if you want. But because I, I think this podcast is generally for people to take a moment to reflect on things that matter. And as per my second book, Scary Smart, I don't think anything matters more in our world today, in all honesty, than understanding where machine learning is going, right? Deep learning, machine learning, artificial intelligence, I think is going to shape our world in ways that humanity needs to become aware of. And when we really think about it, I always think back to if you've read Nassim Taleb's work on the Black Swan, and the idea that there was a moment in history that completely changed everything. When the internet became the internet, I think the life of every human basically became, became just different in every way. And I was hoping today to ask you, how did that revolution change the life of machines? So we humans, we know we got that democracy of information and then we got social media and then we got sucked into the devices and, and, and. But I think what most people don't know is how machines changed when the internet started to show up in our world. Yeah, that, that's a fascinating you know, perspective. I think of the internet and most things uh, in terms of, of connectivity, right? In terms of organizations, you know, just like, we humans first learned to gather, you know, hunt and gather, and we were in little tribes of five, ten, and then we, we managed to, to, to get together in villages of hundreds, and then fiefdoms and, you know, and, and lords and so on of thousands and tens of thousands. And, and today we are seven billion, right? Yeah, give or take. Uh, all interconnected in some way. And, and, if you think about it, there's a collective intelligence that, that results from any, any group, right? Intelligence is more than just your intelligence, my intelligence, the, the two of us, there's some, some shared consciousness at the scale of 7 billion. So, so when you, when you talk about, you know, how did the internet change machines? I, I think the, the most profound thing is the interconnectedness of machines, right? They were individual compute units before that. Uh, and, you know, they have a certain amount of intelligence, you know, can, can, you know, calculate very fast, memorize, you know, billions of digits of pies and so on. But when they get connected, there, there's a profound change, right? And the scale of that connectedness, both at the, at the CPU unit, right, like a computer unit, but, but also at, you know, what's happening down there, you know, Richard Feynman says, there's plenty of room at the bottom, right? So we're, we're now connecting, you know, on, on a single chip, billions of transistors. And if you think about that in terms of the equivalent of neurons, I don't mean the exact equivalent, but each one is doing something that together there's an emergent intelligence. I think what we're seeing is machines getting a lot smarter through that connectedness, right? There's a collective mm. intelligence that emerged. We're seeing pretty awesome, really interesting results coming out of OpenAI in the last uh, few weeks, right? There's certainly GPT-3, but also Dolly now is... Um, Certainly making lay people like me question or, or not question, but you know, <laughs> lay like, people like what, me. <laughs> what, what is uh, <laughs> lay in terms of art and so on, right? Uh, you know, what, what is art, right? We have to change the definition a little bit. Otherwise it's, it's not exclusively the domain of humans anymore. Let's just put this lay people to rest. You're not lay at all, right? So 40 years <laughs> almost in technology, you've worked at quite a few of the big ones, right? You started. I think you were the first to develop apps at Google, if I remember correctly. I mean, you were the directors of, of right, apps right. I was when the first we were just about for... to come out with Android, right? And so tell me a bit about this. I mean, first of all, how did you become a technologist at all? And why did you go so far and so deep? And more interestingly, you're not just a normal technologist. I think you're an entrepreneurial techie somehow. So you keep creating things. Tell me a bit about that. Well, I have no doubt as to the answer to the first question, how did I become a technologist? It's, uh, I just fell into it. I was a refugee, came to San Jose, California at the age of 13, 
didn't speak any English at the time. My first foreign language other than Vietnamese was French. And uh, the misfortune of being a refugee, but also the fortune of their being essentially dropped into what is now Silicon Valley at the very beginning of the BC revolution. So the first computer that the whole family could afford <laughs> was a TI-994A. And it, it had no storage, right? I don't know what that means anymore. How do you, how do you have a computer without storage? <laughs> I so basically, remember those days, right? You you just write the same code every morning. You get up, and you decide to write the same lines of code, right? Yeah. So that was fascinating, right? I mean, it, I had been tinkering since I was five. You know, I, I took apart toys and and learned about motors. I taught myself how a motor worked. I don't mean the the, the electromagnetic properties of it. Uh, it was inaccessible to me, but I knew that to connect battery terminals and make the thing spin and, and, and then do other things out of it, a computer to me was like an accelerated version of that, right? You type a few things and then boom, at the other end, which was a TV, right? It was not a, there was no monitor or anything. You connected your 19-inch black and white TV and interesting things happened on the screen. And uh, yeah, so... I would say largely that the following 40 years has been much of the same, right? Just technology become more connected, become faster and more powerful. You can do more things with it. You can do, you know, at a distance, right? You can affect the whole world. Gmail, you know, was was global. But I think that that, that tinkering, the ability to, you know, as Steve Jobs says, you can push it on one side and at the other side, something comes out. I think that's always fascinated me. But this is not to be taken lightly, Christopher. I think the reality is that in 40 years, so much has happened. I mean, I'm with you. I may have started a couple of years, maybe a few years after you. I, my first computer was a Sinclair, which had a tiny bit of memory, but it was ridiculous when you remember the original IBM XTs or ATs or whatever, where you had those diskettes. That was the extent of the capacity that you had, which is actually not even enough to keep a picture of your loved ones today. And from there, where we had those green screens and text-based uh, computing and code that was so primitive, really. And for a maker like you or I, it was just fascinating. You know, like I tell it to draw a line and look at that on my screen, there is a line. You know, it was just magic, really. And then we're here. How far do you think we've come? So tell me the most fascinating thing that you think is happening in technology today. I think along that arc, perhaps the most fascinating and the most disconcerting thing is that our machines are starting to do things that we don't understand. They produce things that are useful. When I say we don't understand, it doesn't mean we cannot control, right? There's a difference between controlling and understanding. We can still, for a large part, control them, manage them. AI algorithms, they produce beautiful, interesting things. We're still at the input and the output. But for the most part, there's a lot of processing that we don't know, at least at least to the level of comfort that we used to. The von Neumann machine is actually a very dumb machine, right? It's powerful, but it does exactly what you tell it to do, including all mm -hmm. the bugs, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but, but this century, certainly this decade, we're starting to see things happening that we have to explain after observing, almost like we're watching a black box that we ourselves created. And I think that's a, that's a pretty profound shift and it's certainly causing a lot of discomfort, even among the, the community of the people that are making these things, right? Let, let alone the, uh, the 7 billion people out there that are just at the receiving end of it. I'm 100% with you, by the way. So my, my entire work is focused on that point, the idea that we've not only are creating things that are smarter than us in specific tasks, we don't even understand how they're smarter than us. We don't even understand some of the time, but even probably most of the time, we don't know how they arrived at those conclusions. Yes, we can still control them for the time being, even though I, I'd like to come back to that for a minute. But at the same time, it is definitely not something that we know. We have to write extra code to understand the neural network through which a machine arrives at a decision, right? And can you tell me a little bit why that is? Like, how can a, a developer actually write a code that provides intelligence for a machine, but not really understand how the machine is doing it? Yeah, well, I think the key insight here is is what I referred to earlier, uh, von Neumann machine. And I, I understand I, I should break that down and you know describing what that is and what the machines we're building today are not. 
A von Neumann machine is, you know, we refer to that because John von Neumann was credited with essentially creating that architecture, but it's really the work of many as always. But it has a central processing unit. It has something that does comp computation and largely just addition and subtractions and so on. And then separately, it has some memory storage, like your Sinclair. And what happens is it moves memory into the compute space, and then the compute unit does something with it, add four and five, and send the result back out. And that's it. And through these building blocks, and by the way, this is how we construct things, right? We, we do very simple building blocks, and then they come together. So the, the, the that simple addition becomes a simple process that sums up, let's say, your, your spreadsheet or something, and then you understand that. And then a higher level concept, the spreadsheets that combine to make some business decisions and so on. At every stage, at every stage, humans are in complete control mm. or certainly a complete understanding. Mm. With machine learning, we're no longer building von Neumann machines for better and for worse. Machine learning is about very simple learning algorithms, a neuron is no more or a unit in a neural network is no more than Okay, I will take 20 inputs, I will multiply by the connection weights, and I will sum them up. And if it exceeds a certain threshold, I'm going to fire one. Uh, if it's lower than that, I'll say zero. That's it. That's, that's the compute unit. That's we completely understand that. And of course, there are variations and, and, and so on. But magically, when you connect them together, particularly in layers, and the layers is what creates what's called non-linearity, non right? And then you add a learning algorithm called backpropagation, the details of which are probably not too important to understand how a neural network really works, but it's in all these layers. And then once that happens, something magical occurs. <laughs> so there's a leap. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And we do understand some of the basis, the mathematical basis of that leap. But for the large part, when it's doing something more complex, like telling the difference between cats and dogs, or something generative, like what we're seeing with Dolly, right? You type in a sentence and, and somehow a, an appropriate, beautiful image emerges at the other side. That more complex process, we didn't make happen. We didn't organize that. We didn't, uh, it's like input and output and a black box in between. Memory and compute are the same thing, right? The, the neuro is, is memorizing something it learned from the past. It's also doing computation based on that. But it is not the simple von Neumann machine that we know, here's the input, now do this, and then give me the output. So, you know, like what you said, now we have to write other software to probe into these neural networks to say, what is really going on? And the interesting thing is, you know, we've been doing that with human brain for a very long time, right? Does understanding <laughs> the chemistry of yeah. of the neuron tell you sufficiently, you know, in an organized uh, organizational level, what is really going on, right? So that's what we're struggling with. It really doesn't. I mean, we, we don't even understand intelligence at the human level fully. We understand that architecture, we understand which is similar to what you described in the machines of today. Let me just say this for our audience. Basically, what we're doing is we're really simulating how the brain is working. And the way the brain is working is it's not configured for any specific tasks. Right. It right. simply uses intelligence uh, when certain neurons fire together to, to help you catch something, for example, you learn that process and you define that as part of your intelligence. And then when you're driving a car, you use that process to hold the steering wheel, for example, right? right, and, right. And, and basically you're constantly compounding that intelligence step over step over step, layer over layer over layer. And, and what we're now programming into those machines is much more you know, like that than it is as like an instruction manual, which is how we programmed them before. Before we told them step by step exactly what to do to achieve a task. Now we're giving them sort of the intelligence, the tools to be able to achieve that task. And, and very few developers actually spend the time to actually investigate and understand how the neural network actually worked, unless they are maybe researchers in the field. Most developers are happy that the task is done and then the program is out there on the internet right. and doing its job. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, at the, at the conceptual level, the, the key difference here is learning right? Yeah. Uh, in the past, when you and I wrote those basic programs, uh, there was no learning taking place inside the program, right? It remembers mm -hmm. exactly what we told it, and it does exactly what we told it. These algorithms that we're now creating, we're creating not the end result algorithm, we're creating learning algorithms. 
And specifically in the learning process, the weight, the connection changes, right? So we understand that completely, but how that then completely comes together and does something that appears to be very intelligent, that remains sort of that process. We're not able to watch that decision being made and it's certainly not explaining itself to us. So we don't, yeah. we don't understand that part, right? Like, why did you, do you make such a, a decision? We know how, but we don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Which is quite the point, really. I mean, most of my, my work on artificial intelligence is trying to highlight that, is trying to highlight that those machines are independent in a way, in the way they arrive at those decisions. It's they're learning, they're not slaves anymore. They have some form of agency and free will. Uh, and I'll, I'll come back to those uh, points in, in, in a few minutes. But can I ask you first, Christopher, so why did it take so long? I mean, I'm sure like me, when you were a young developer playing with computers, you also dreamt of artificial intelligence, right? Why did it take so long for us to actually reach the point where machines actually became intelligent? What was the barrier on the way? Oh, oh, that's very clear. That's very clear. Compute power and storage or data, right? Mm. The reason when you look back in the past, you will see that von Neumann machines were either an accident or a evil necessity precisely because of their lack of intelligence. I said earlier, they're very dumb, right? Yeah. The reason they're dumb is because the compute power required to do that is very little, right? All <laughs> yeah, of it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to be dumb. <laughs> exactly, right? All the intelligence came from your brain, right? Whatever program you wrote, that <laughs> came from, it just, it, it just has enough computational power to do the very simple thing that you tell it to do, right? And, and thinking about what to tell it, you know, we came up with entire computer science theories about algorithms and so on, right? That's all human, right? Machines are just like following those algorithms as we, all the intelligence is outside. So it does take a lot of time for there to be enough compute power and, and enough data collected for, for learning to take place, right? And you can mark different dates, but a particularly interesting date is 2012, right? When the brain project mm. at Google was covered by the New York Times. And, you know, I fondly call it the cat's paper, right? When, when it recognized. I cats, remember right? the cat's paper. Yeah. Yes. But, but uh, you know, I talked to Quark, right? You know, and, and, and he said, you know, people call it cats, but I was really trying to get it to recognize Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> That, that's it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you had the right objective, but you didn't really bad, do that badly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I think human evolution is the same, right? I mean, you're familiar with like Lamarckian evolution, you know, versus Darwinian and so on, right? There's a theory, which is, you know, says the birth canal, right? The size of the birth canal evolved over time so that the human brain or the whatever was before we call human evolved in such a way that sort of nature has two choices. One is, you are born with everything pre-wired and you can deal with the environment almost preordained to the level of intelligence you have, or you can be born with nothing, but some capability to, to learn, right? And it's optimized in different ways. You know, if, if, if it's all one or the other, you wouldn't survive, right? So you would evolution yourself out, right? Mm. So the humans and related species sort of randomly evolved to a place where there's there's some initial equipment, right? So you can cry and you can have all these innate abilities and so on, but you also have the ability to learn. And because the environment changes, that species that, that figured out how to learn kind of survive and, and, and replicated itself. And, and it does take yeah. time. It does take uh, enough neurons to come together to form what we think of as supreme intelligence on earth. But, uh, you know, I tell you, you know, between us, right? We're very dumb. <laughs> I, I, I will come back to this in a minute. So the first thing that made the difference is we came to a point in the history of humanity where we had enough compute power to equip the machines with more than just the capability of executing instructions, but actually the capability to learn. So they became a little more capable of using brains that can actually solve problems that they have not been instructed how to solve first. And then the other side of it is data. And I'll come back to that in a minute, but I should probably, you know, tell everyone quickly about the cat experiment because every fan of artificial intelligence thinks the cat paper, right? So this was the time when I think it was 2009, 2010, I don't remember, or was it later? 2007, well, Jeff Hinton came first give one of these tech 
talks, yes. you know, and I was in the audience, mm -hmm. it was 2007. And, and that's when yeah. we started thinking, hmm, what if we take these algorithms and apply it to the vast computational power of Google? What would happen, right? Yes. Because these learning algorithms, we've known about them for a very long time. It's just, they're not that interesting. And, and they were, they perform much worse than the more algorithmic approaches, right, of, of other, other branches of machine learning. Yeah. And, and the task then was we, we asked them to watch YouTube, if I remember correctly, just to <laughs> yeah, see frame that's by frame. Right. That's right. That's yeah. right. And, and, and basically we call it the cat paper because it's actually quite, I mean, an epiphany in almost any computer scientist's timeline where those machines unprompted kept watching YouTube until they started to find, to define not the shape of a cat, but what catness is about. They, they had the intelligence to be able to say, look, you know, whether I see it from the side or the top or the bottom, whether it's, you know, jumping or hissing, this is a cat. And they could define that completely unprompted. Now that I think Christopher hints to the other side of, uh, of what was needed for the, for the revolution to happen, which was data, right? YouTube tends to have enough cats on it for a machine to actually be able to find that pattern. Can you explain this a little bit, please? Yeah, so maybe I'll approach it very fundamentally and let's see if I can sort of make sense of it, right? The world is not random. The pixels mm -hmm. on the screen, I'm seeing you on the screen, you know, I'm seeing icons and so on. That is a very non-random collection of pixels, right? If it were random, it'd be sort of like, you know, static noise, right? White noise on the screen. So if you keep observing the screen or the world, after a while, your brain realizes that, that these pixels or these images exist in certain ways, right? And in statistics, we call that distributions, right? This distribution is not uniform throughout the universe. It's like things exist in space in, in a certain way. And so these distributions are learned by our brain. Right. We, we learn to, to expect, okay, if you we can see half of you and there's a uh, eyeglass on one, I expect that there'll be the other one in the other. So it's because my brain has, has learned these, these uh, likelihood distributions. So these algorithms are essentially the same way, right? In that work, work and, and uh, others essentially fed images from YouTube videos of, of which there are lots and lots of cats, right? And after a yeah. while, because of the non-random nature of these pixels distributions, it starts to learn, okay, whenever I see an ear, <laughs> there tend to be whiskers. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't think of it as, as these named entities, but it certainly learns about that relationship, the likelihood of these things occurring, and they tend to occur together. And after a while, you know, say, okay, if I see this distribution, these, these things are closer to each other in space, in mathematical space, than say images of a cow or images of a car or the sky and so on. Those things have very different statistical properties on the screen. So inside this vast neural network, somehow because of the ways that changes, is recorded these representations of these likelihood distributions. And so the next time you mm -hmm. feed it a cat image, those things that corresponding those various things you cannot point to a single place but you know in a in a weighted distributed way the the res there's resonance with catness and mm -hmm. that resonance you know goes through the various layers and then at the final layer there's one neuron that is the cat neuron and it says yeah. this is the most likely concept being presented to me yeah, every time I there is a cat, all of the the other neurons, digital neurons, if you want to call them, will feed that neural network upwards, and then there is one neuron that says, "Yeah, I think it's a cat." Right now, with that in mind, and because there are there is so much knowledge out there in the world already, we've taught them to recognize shapes. We've taught them to read. We've taught them to listen to spoken words, even with my weird accent and recognize it and turn it into written words. And where's the limit? I mean, and recently we're starting to see art. Like if, you know, if you want to share a little bit about this week and what's happening on the art scene and so on, where is the limit? You know, is there anything that they will not be able to learn? I, I would like to, to there to be no limit, right? But, but I, I think in a positive way, sort of coming back to what I almost flippantly said earlier, right? You know, we're not, we're not that smart. If you <laughs> think about human evolution, let, let's forget about AI for a moment, machine learning. We are still very much along an arc of evolution, right? And that arc is billions of years and we're barely, you know, 
100 million if you're very generous. We're very early in that exponential growth. And so our intelligence, everything else is evolving, in particular the intelligence. So there should be no limit to that. Machine intelligence happens to have come, you know, impressively in the last 50 years. There should be a point where our intelligence is augmented by machine intelligence, right? And evolution takes place at a much higher rate, right? Maybe you can call that hyper evolution. I think, I think that's going to happen in, in this century. Um, mm. yeah. And I agree. Uh, you know, I, I talked earlier about the idea of this collective intelligence, right? As a planet, we have some emergent, you know, species intelligence. If you were a Martian or something you're observing from, from, from space, right? After a hundred million years of quietness, suddenly little things start to come out, right? <laughs> mm. And then they see a little Elon Musk sitting in his uh, roaster. So if yeah. you, if you thought of that as an intelligent unit, this thing has been baking for a long time and now it's starting to send messages into, into the universe. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. I mean, from a, a collective intelligence of humanity, simply because, you know, if you know how to light an LED in Korea, you also know how to do it in California, and then you can collectively do better and better for all of us. I think we're definitely evolving. And I, and I think what you're saying is that first, they will learn all of the tasks that we can do and be augmented within our intelligence. So they will help us become smarter, which I think is true already in, in a way that yes. the collective intelligence of Google is making me smarter because it can search on my behalf, for example. That's right. And then eventually would you foresee them becoming intelligent enough to do things we've never been intelligent enough to do? As, as you rightly said, I agree we're dumb in so many ways. Yeah, yeah. I think absolutely, right? There's concepts that may require superhuman intelligence to be to simultaneously hold and make decisions based on such that decisions are made in, I don't want to go there, but you know, say God works in mysterious ways, right? In the future, you know, whatever intelligence we have that we control, we manage, it may work in, in similarly mysterious ways simply because within one human brain, it escapes our ability to hold all those concepts together to make that decision. I think what's important, though, yeah. is not where it ultimately goes, because we're still human, we're still here, there's this moment. I think we need to care a lot about the, the process and how it's happening, how it's unfolding, right? There is a, there's a speed at which things happen, right? Technology is accelerating things. You know, 100 years ago, uh, we can have a leisurely conversation, and, and if we're this far apart, we'll never see each other throughout our, our lifetime. Technology is making things happen and change it in such a way that our biological ability to adapt is exceeded in various ways. And, and I think, I think that matters a lot, right? If we are to take globalization, right? There's people who absolutely believe that that's, that's a good thing because it raises the standard of living of everyone and without even getting to the debate of the pros and cons of that. Certainly that doesn't help the 10,000 people whose jobs are removed because of a manufacturing plant just moved overseas, right? I'm not talking about a moral issue of doing that. I'm talking about the very, you know, intent doesn't matter. Impact is what matters, right? You can't ask these tens of tens of people that's just like, okay, just reskill and, and go into software engineering. So to the extent that we're building these systems that are moving, you know, in terms of their progress at unprecedented speeds, some of us need to look at it and say, what what is it causing in society? And it's not just AI, right? Social media some of the system that you and I are responsible for, for helping to build. Exactly. Yeah. I want to come back to this in a lot of detail, if you allow me, but I wanted to ask another question first, because just to sort of sum it up. So we can see that hopefully there will be no limit. I mean, I'm with you, of course, by the way, there is no downside to intelligence and the more of it we have, the better decisions we can make. I always say that, you know, we've invented aeroplanes because we're smart, but we've made them destroy the planets with greenhouse gas emissions because we're not smart enough, right? So if we can become smarter, then we probably will be able to do things better and, that, and that's good for everyone. Let's go a little bit beyond, because I heard you drop that word in there, a little bit beyond intelligence. Things like consciousness, collective memories, collective being in a way. I mean, people in the past used to say, oh, the machines will never be creative. Now we see enormously beautiful art coming from machines. Do you think they'll have things like emotions, like consciousness, like ethics? 
Well, I think to even deal with that question, and there are questions about about this consciousness and and understanding. It is important before we get into trying to answer it, just to first agree on the terms, right?、Mm. Uh, for example, we don't quite know. Engineers, we all think the same. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, we use terms like consciousness quite quite easily, right? And and you know what I mean. I know what you mean. But、yes. no, do do I really know what you mean? Right? What do、not、we mean really, by consciousness? Right? And even if we agree on what we try to mean by consciousness, do we even know how human consciousness works? Right? And so, you could try to reduce to certain things. I'll, I'll, I'll try to be concrete. So, for example, let's let me not try to reach for consciousness because every time I try to do something, somebody's going to say, "Well, that's not consciousness." What about the 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 sort of a self awareness? Right? And let me reduce it further to the idea of being aware of. Myself, my existence, in this conversation, in this space, both spatially and also conceptually, right? That is what's going on in my mind. There's an awareness that an I exists, right? I think that's very, very accessible to our algorithms that are emerging. Totally. In fact,、um, anytime you embody intelligence, right, make robots and so on, they have to move around. They have to touch things. And so they have to have a symbol. They have to have a concept for whatever they are. Right? If you're going to touch something, they're going to be aware of it. So that self-awareness is both programmed as well as emergent as it learns about the world. Right? It'll learn about images of cats just as much as it learns about the arm that we give it. Right? The existence that. So, if you think of consciousness that way, or that subset of it as self-awareness and self-awareness the way that I have described it. I think it's it's self-evident that it will be emergent. Now, can we make the next leap and say, well, apply that to everything, and、yeah. you know, everything that we see as somehow uniquely human? I remember the conversation with a good friend. I won't name him, but、uh, this is just just five short years ago. Very thoughtful person, very 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 smart. And he was asking, he was saying, but Christopher,、uh, creativity and 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 initiative. How could that come from machines? And again, like you mentioned just now, right? We're seeing things from Dolly and Dolly Two that are arguably are creative, right? Now we could go and go back and deconstruct that and say, well, I know how that works, and so that's not creativity. But maybe it's important for us to go back and say, well, what is human creativity to begin with? Except the ability to combine. Different probability distributions, right? We tend to、yeah. attribute, for example, one kind of creativity is when, if you have a, an eclectic background and you put your technology perspective together with your perspective about philosophy, then you come up with an intersection, right, that others haven't thought of before, and we say, "Well, that's so creative." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've always defined creativity as an ability to observe existing patterns and find alternative patterns to the same. Right, and. Exactly. Cause or target or whatever, right? So it's a mode of problem solving. If your creativity is applied to a problem, for example, it's a mode of problem solving that adds a restrictive algorithm that says, "But if it's been done before, don't do it the same way." Right. Right. Exactly. And and you know, synesthesia is is very、uh, occurs at a very high incidence、uh, among artists, right? People we think of as as creative, and and, and I think a, a big part of creativity is the intersection. Of senses and mental models and representations that normally don't occur, right? And when they do occur, it's a rare event, right? Maybe a black swan event, and we say, "Wow, that's amazing! That I I, I never thought about that that way," right?、Mm. Uh, the, the most creative yeah. people in、yeah. the room usually are the、uh, you know come from the most eclectic backgrounds. Yeah. Very true. So let's go a little further. I mean, self-awareness could definitely lead to collective awareness because if I know that I am me, then in this conversation I can conclude that you're not me. So you're a separate entity from me. So that creates an awareness of you as a separate entity, and and we can go from there. But maybe let's just touch on emotions. For example, would would the machines feel fear? I would like to. I'll be. Quite operational, right? <laughs> I think if we think about fear as two things, right? The stimulus and the response. The stimulus causes some kind of chemical changes that affect certain parts of the brain, and so it's a set of signals, right? 
And fear turns out to be very useful, right? It's not random. It it exists so that if you didn't have any fear, your your tribe would not be here today. Right? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> you and I exist because our tribe, you know, expressed fear and ran away from that lion. So it causes a a response that is somehow productive. And we classify these things into different types of emotions because it's a useful classification: fear, happiness, joy, excitement, and, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, they are un the underlying mechanisms and the purposes are generally the same. I think, at least in primitive ways and perhaps increasingly sophisticated ways, machines can express these things. There's another way to to understand your question, which is the simulation of it, right? Like in Japan, you know,、uh, people are getting older, and one of the solutions is robotics, right?、Uh, companions,、yeah. right? And you got to create these AI companions, and they can certainly be told to now act happy. And and we humans are are amazing at at interpreting symbols, right?、Uh, it can it can just be a smiley face, and and you and I will actually feel happy, right? So to to the degree that the operating impact it has on us. Is perceived as as emotion, right? How much does it matter that is actually emotion coming from that、uh, companion robot? That's so interesting. So, so the simulation we know is happening. It's getting a ton of research in it. Whether the machine's ability to recognize our emotions、That's、or、right. to portray emotional human emotions in a way that can be deceiving, sort of, to the Turing test. You know that you can sort of feel that this robot is actually happy, sort of. So, if we assume that, to take the same example, that a robot is responsible for the safety of an elderly. If the elderly falls, the the robot's actual algorithm is saying feel concerned, you know,、mm -hmm. or or at least define this as something that requires action, or you know, I I always define fear as a moment in the future that is a, that appears to be more threatening that than than right now. So that can be algorithmic, right? It can be、mm -hmm. defined as okay, it seems. That there is a threat in the future, either to me or to the person I'm taking care of. So, it may not be felt, but we we also don't know what happens within the human to make us feel certain things. I mean, we have theories around it. Similarly, the machines would have something, and we can call it feeling or call it something else, but it's similar in a way. Right. Yeah. So I come back to this point, which I think is fundamental. Right. Otherwise. We've been able to build machines to emulate, to express right emotion for a very long time. We we don't need machine learning and AI for it. But I think the reason we're asking a lot of these questions at this moment, right, is that fundamental shift in in how we build machines, and that's the term learning, the capability to learn that I said earlier. Up to this point, that has been somehow very uniquely human. It changes the entire field of computer science at at the very least, right. Our students, you know, I used to be a professor. We used to teach them algorithms and and say, read the book and then apply it to at scale and so on. Today, we're teaching them in the machine learning field to say, I'm going to teach you these basic algorithms, but what it is that they will do is sort of entirely up to the、mm -hmm. learning, right? Yeah.、Uh, so I yeah. think that that's the big shift. And and once machines start to learn, we become a little concerned that hey, they're they're now. The the final frontier of what makes me unique on this planet, and so we we start to question about consciousness, creativity, initiative, emotion, and so on. It's almost these questions that try to separate us out. Somewhat a futile effort, I would say. <laughs> I am with you a hundred percent. But can can I ask you this question then? I mean, I know your current startup, your current company is creating sort of. Positive impact of AI. You're trying to get AI to help humanity in many ways, but that's not what everyone is doing. And in an interesting way, I mean, I have to question: When does humanity stop? Like we know that we're crossing the final frontier. We probably crossed it already. We know that they're going to be smarter. That they're going to have free will. They're going to have agency. They they're going to behave in ways that we don't fully understand. That we now control them. But you know, if something is smarter than you, you don't really know if you're going to be able to control it or not.、Mm -hmm. And yet, we continue to develop it. And、mm -hmm. and I and I found that to be, I mean, there are many theories, and many many of my friends who are in the field will tell you different answers. But I continue to ask myself, why is humanity doing this? Why don't we just stop? 
you read David Kelly of Wired, he's very thoughtful, right? He has a, I think a yeah. book or a chapter of book that says what technology wants. And I think if you pause and think about that, it's actually quite profound, which is, again, to come back to this collective society intelligence, right? No matter how you feel, no matter how I feel about it, we can't stop it. We cannot stop progress. It is an inexorable urge of what we call humanity. So that's why I say it's important to pay attention to the process, to these changes and the effect it has on humanity, both right now and, and where it's going. And in terms of where it's going, you know, you talk about you know, the company Itomatic that, that I run. Our purpose, we have a company vision framework, purpose, mission, core values. The purpose is to elevate humanity through AI, right? And I think that's actually quite operational in the sense that uh, I don't think it's a race between humans and machines. I think just like the, the pair of glasses that you and I are wearing, we should endeavor to make sure that these things we're building, which we become, become so-called super human intelligence, all of those properties can be ascribed to us. They're helping to lift us along with whatever capabilities of the system that we're building is. That's number one, ultimately, right? But number two, while we're doing it, we have to be very mindful of the impact it's having on the biological humans, not just about having human control, but also the impact on, on human, right? I think that that's also why the question of ethics come up so early in the cycle of this technology. Yeah, we worked on technology. You know, I've, I've worked for 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 forty years, and these government regulations and questions and so on have come at unprecedented speed. But I think appropriately so because people are seeing the impact of of this rate of change. I deal every day with uh, life critical systems, right? Automotive, cybersecurity how a fish gets you know, in the cold supply chain from the ocean to your kitchen table, Wi-Fi entertainment on your, on your planes and so on. These are things that are very physical. Machines that, that you and I dealt with with the early internet were really in cyberspace and in a way that's sort of an aberration, right? Because they, they didn't have enough access to the physical world. But these machines are now, I drive a Tesla and it's driving me and it's driving better than me. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, yeah. uh, it's been built in such a way that it doesn't kill other people. So I think, I think being very thoughtful about how we're deploying these technologies, right? AI is just in that context, just another technology. And I, I've learned a lot from my colleagues of Panasonic in the last four years, you know, after our company was acquired, these are people, unlike many of us, Silicon Valley, these are people who've thought about human safety for a very long time, for a hundred years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they're not asking new questions. They're just, just saying, you know, how do I best apply this new technology? in such a way that it actually improves lives and, and certainly not make it worse. Yeah, I, I love that. And I and I think, if you don't mind me saying this, because I heard you talk about this once, there there is a bug in Silicon Valley's understanding of if you want the human interaction with technology. I, th I think Silicon Valley is a lot more driven by the tech than by the human. Would you agree to that? I think that's absolutely true, right? But also Silicon Valley is not just a place, right? It is a, somebody said it is a state of mind, right? And that yeah. state of mind <laughs> evolves. Silicon Valley wasn't always as it is and will not be as it is. There's a pendulum that swings between, if you think about geographically where Silicon Valley has been, it's actually the center of gravity actually does move, right? Oh, does it? I didn't know that. Yeah, the, the, yeah. you know, it's, it's yeah, yeah. San Jose and, you know, the manufacturing world. That's correct, actually. Semiconductor, yeah. Intel is in Santa Clara. And then we move to the software era, right? And so we have uh, Google, Facebook, and, and, and so on. And then we move up to the consumer age, the Twitter and, and, and the Pinterest of the world in San Francisco, right? <laughs> correct. So you, you trace that evolution geographically. You also trace the evolution, you know, uh, in terms of the pendulum between research development and application. And I think... Part of what we're observing over the last decade is less fundamental research development in terms of Silicon Valley and more the consumerization of it, right? Yeah. Because consumerization is good, but it also leads to things like maximizing advertising clicks as opposed to quality of life. And I think what's happening is the pendulum is now swinging back toward more fundamental research and development, right? I'd love to be able to see things 
20 years back, right? In terms of all of these neuro, neuromorphic, you know, I, uh, chips and so on that, that we're building. A lot of interesting research is happening there that does not directly impact human lives yet has, has not been consumerized. But what wonderful and terrible things would, <laughs> would be enabled by that in the yeah. next, in the following decade when the pendulum swings back to, uh, to consumerization. I think, uh, it, it's good to put safeguards in place. I'm with you. I, I think it's, um, interesting how the pendulum is moving. And I think if you look at what happened with COVID, for example, somehow humanity reacts better when things are closer, when threats are closer or challenges are closer. So my guess is that humanity is starting to feel more and more that we need to put controls in place. I mean, one of the issues I have with artificial intelligence for a very long time is that you and I, you know, in computer science will know that everyone is hoping that we will figure out the control problem and that we will constantly control them. And, you know, in my mind, you can't control something that's a billion times smarter than you, but people don't really think about those things until they suddenly start to come face to face with machines that are very much smarter than them. And they go like, hold on, this is actually happening. We need to, to get serious about the control problem, right? And I think that that swing, as you rightly say, is happening. But your company, as an example of AI, very clever name, by the way, it's written as AI-tomatic, right? So right. I thought that was very clever. And I think that the work you're doing is also very clever, but you're in the right side of AI. That's not always the case. There are, of course, people who invest a lot of money to create trading algorithms that will take markets up and down and just make profit. Or sadly, there are killing machines and drones and robots and so on and so forth. What do you think the role of others in this game is? You know, the role of government, the role of us as individuals. What do you think we should do in order to make our future brighter, in order to make those machines actually have our best interest in mind? I like to say this phrase, right? Nobody gets up in the morning saying, I'm going to be evil today. <laughs> I, I believe that, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe one or two individuals, but nobody does that. So, so I, I think one of the things that escape many of us, even people I think who are very thoughtful, meaning very responsible, I think, I think we need to at least separate intent from impact. And in fact, I would advocate focus on impact rather than intent. Just because you didn't intend to do something doesn't mean you have to be responsible for the impact of it. Many of us technologists in particular, maybe even academia, like to say, look, I'm just going to do the best technology, the best research that I can. How it's used, it can be used for good, it can be used for evil, is beyond me. I am on the school of thought that say, no, that that's not right. That, that cannot be right, yeah. right? Particularly as technology is being put into application so much faster, so much sooner, and at such amazing scale. So I think, I think at the very least, being aware of the potential impact and then controlling for that impact as we think about these things. And, and I don't mean that in a very abstract way. Machine learning algorithms, right? There's uh, what in, in AI ethics, people say, you know, look, my algorithms just reflect the data. If it makes a bad decision where bad is subjective, right? Bad, bad is, let's say it makes on aggregate a discriminatory housing lending decision that discriminates against uh, a protected class that we say in sort of in human space, uh, that would be grounds for, for a lawsuit or an EOB action. We technologists then say, look, I'm just here to do my job. I, I, you give me the data. I train my model and it does what the data says. That statement, while true, sort of lack this larger perspective of the system that we're building. It's not just the model, it is the system. Uh, what we call something called knowledge first AI or human first AI, we think about the entire system impact. And I would say everywhere along the chain, we have a responsibility wherever we are to think about the final impact at the output end, rather than saying, look, that's not job, that's someone else's job. I, I just work here, I give you the information, you make the decision. And by the way, that's uh, I'm, I'm an American now, I've been American most of my life, but I still observe America or certain Western society, sometimes with an, uh, an outsider perspective. And, and I think it's, it's something unique about our society that says, for example, 
guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? And the implication being gun makers and, and gun distributors and, and gun runners uh, don't have that responsibility is the final trigger puller. I think that if you think about that as applied to AI and the impact of it, I wouldn't like to make that argument as as a maker Absolutely of AI. Not. Right? Absolutely not. I think that's such a profound example, to be very honest. I mean, the idea is, yes, guns do kill people when the trigger is pulled. So it's both the gun and the trigger puller, right? It's uh, without, without the gun, it would just be a, a finger movement that wouldn't harm a lot of people. And I think, I think that reality could not be more exaggerated than it could be in AI. I think that reality in AI is that if you build a machine that is much more powerful at whatever it does than humans are, then you should expect that this machine will actually go and do it. And you know, you're just simply building bigger and bigger guns, I think. So in your conversation here, you're saying magnifying the trend of what is available. So in my work in Scary Smart and the message I was trying to tell the world that perhaps another responsibility is on me and you and everyone that's feeding the machine with this data to sort of try to at least change our own behaviors, you know, in a way that makes magnification of our behaviors a good thing because our, exactly. behaviors, our behaviors themselves are good. You would agree with that? Absolutely. Number one is everywhere along the chain that produces this AI and remembering that, that machines will always reflect the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. And, and you know, in some way or other, we all wish the world to be different from what it is. And for a very long time, that's going to be the domain of humans, right? We express the aspiration for how tomorrow will be different from today. And the algorithms that we build will always reflect up to, up to the moment. And, and the decision to be made can be aided by, augmented by, greatly boosted by machines and, and, and algorithms. But I think it is, it is the responsibility of humans to make sure that the delta where it's going in, in the future is thoughtfully, you know, dealt with. And, and that's our responsibility, not machines. I can't thank you enough, Christopher. I, I know you're busy and you have a whole day in, ahead of you. I would have spoken to you for a couple of hours more, to be honest, and perhaps I would actually call on you for more information and knowledge, but I know you have a busy day and I think this is a, a wonderful place to end our conversation. It's the responsibility of humans, not the machines, whether they are the humans that are creating the code, whether they are the humans that are setting the objectives for what the code should be created for, or whether they're the humans that are dealing with the machines. I think we have the ability to actually inform the machine by stopping to pull our, the trigger ourselves that the machine should not pull a trigger by stopping to bully someone that the machine shouldn't bully someone that, you know, by stopping to discriminate against others that the machines shouldn't discriminate against others. And I think that's a very profound place to end our conversation. I can't thank you enough. This was wonderful. Well, thank you. I appreciate meeting way. you. Thank you so much for being here. And for all of you that spent the hour with us, I hope you realize that as I always say, I think the biggest pandemic in our time is not COVID. It is what can happen in the presence, in the rise of the age of the machines and the rise of artificial intelligence, which could create a utopia that can make every one of us live a much more wonderful life. And by the way, I am in that space. I mean, are you optimistic, Christopher? Yeah, I have to be, right? Otherwise I can't get up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's not just a state of mind. It's, it's also trying to do, you know, the, the little deltas that every one of us can do to try to point the boat uh, in the right direction. Because you're right, it can go in the, in the very many bad directions. Yeah, which I think is the best kind of, uh, of optimism, by the way, is the optimism that's driven by, I will do my part and that's why I'm optimistic. And I think for, for all of us, we have a role to play. We, we have to start showing the machines the patterns that would make the machine sway in the right direction. And I think this truly is one of the crucial components of how we can make a difference. Yes, we want the developers to do better. We want the business leaders to want uh, to sway back, as Christopher was saying, to the direction of what's good for humanity, not just for the, for the bottom line. But when it comes to you and I, 
that's what we have. We can show the right patterns so that the right intelligence develops. As I said in my introduction, Christopher is a serious authority on the topic. I will not stop talking about artificial intelligence, even though my next book is on a different topic. And I want to remind all of us to keep spreading this message. So if you've enjoyed this, please spread it to others. Please visit the work of Christopher and learn about how AI can do something wonderful for humanity. And please tell others to wake up and join us and really make a difference to the way those machines are learning. As always, I cannot be more grateful for you giving me the alibi to meet with such wonderful, amazing thinkers around the world. And uh, I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.